Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Uh, once again, continuing with this uh, lunchtime series, called, which we've called the Power of Change, and it's really a series about Teshuvah in the theme of Elul, just some uh, little vignettes from the way that the concept of Teshuvah is dealt with in Jewish history and in Jewish sources. Uh, if you would recall, last week we talked about this kind of dual aspect of Teshuvah, that on the one hand, it involves an inner change, that's an internal process, uh, and the other is the external process of restoration. And we looked at some early biblical figures, uh, and I was going to, in this uh, short series, I was wanting to move through different parts of Jewish history and thought, uh, but today I'm going to stay uh, a little bit with uh, the Tanakh, I'm going to stay a little bit with the Bible, given that the Bible, the Tanakh, is really the the uh, never-ending source of Jewish thought, whereas, you know, Talmud and Midrash might be the engine room of how these things are unpacked, and we'll look at that a bit, but really, uh, one 30-minute uh, session on the way that Teshuvah is dealt with in Tanakh is not sufficient. So I'm going to look at some historical uh, aspects of Tanakh, moving out of the... Uh, the proto-historical into the real, but nevertheless, we're going to stay within, within, the, within the parameters of the Bible. And, um, on, and once again, with a focus on these different types of teshuva, internal and external, remember that I, I find it very difficult to translate the word teshuva. I know that many people refer to it as repentance, but it's also got the implication of response, of return, so uh, for me, the word is far more dynamically represented by the word teshuva. Those of you who get nervous by uh, words that are not translated uh, can simply pretend that that's a word in English and it means teshuva. So one of the big uh, issues coming out of Tanakh uh, is that there is this other aspect to teshuva Another thing we need to look at, whereas last week we looked at contrasting cases of individual teshuva. So we looked, for example, at the way that the teshuva of, of Cain of Cain was different from that teshuva that really was not done by his father Adam as a, as a case of uh, personal transformation. And we looked at the way, for example, that the teshuva done by King David was different from the attempted teshuva done by his predecessor, King Saul. And what we start to get a picture of is this idea that teshuva, in either of its aspects, can be done superficially or can be done authentically. And I want to explore that a little bit in, uh, because I want to talk about the notion of collective teshuva today. What do I mean by collective teshuva? is that um, I'm talking about the teshuva of a nation, of a whole group of people. 
And the outstanding example that Tanakh is constantly going on about, of course, is the collective teshuva of the people of Israel. And we see this at regular different times, even as far back as the Torah. We're told that after the horrendous episode of the golden calf, which is the national sin par excellence as far as the Jewish people are concerned, there was, although there was an intercession by Moshe on behalf of the Jewish people, there was nevertheless a, uh, a movement of, of change, of transformation within the Jewish people, and this happened at various times. But once we get into the first temple period, what we're finding is that the national and collective behavior of the Jewish people uh, became so deteriorated that the Nivim, that the prophets are constantly calling for Teshuvah. And the story, of course, as you famously know, throughout much of the First Temple period, those warnings went unheeded and ended in disaster, in decrees of punishment and exile and destruction and so on, because the people were given the chance to uh, transform themselves as a society, and they didn't. And... There are example, there, there, there is a whole theme of that going through the prophets. I'm, I might talk about this uh, at another time because it's, a, it's, it's such an incredibly deep and rich uh, field for us. I, I, as I said last week, my job is to not act, to act like some, uh, some rabbi getting up in shul and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. I don't want to get too preachy, but I want to look at these themes um, in, uh, as... as head on as we can, because what we find is that when we look at the way that each of the individual, this is amazing. I mean, I, 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 I'm only mentioning it and you're sitting there going, oh, that's an interesting point, but you're not realizing necessarily how amazing this is. But when we look at each of the distilled messages of the prophets of Israel, we find that their message of Teshuvah, each one has a slightly nuanced message of Teshuvah, a call to Teshuvah, which reflects kind of what the context and concerns of that prophet is. For example, if we look at the distilled statement of the prophet Isaiah, when he says, you know, I have already wiped your sins clean, says God. I've made them go away like a cloud, or I've made them white as pure wool. Because I have already redeemed you. And we can already see inside that message the whole context and historical theme of the prophet Isaiah who lived through the great redemption that happened in the time of Hezekiah and is nevertheless still asking the people to make this inner transformation. We look, for example, at someone, a prophet like Hosea, who confronts the northern kingdom of Israel very directly. And we've spoken about these prophets individually in separate circumstances, but this is their distilled message. Return, O Israel, to God your Father, because you have stumbled in your sin. And what's amazing is that Hosea is um, <laughs> preaching, if you like, um, to a kingdom that is undergoing in the, in the 8th century BCE, the northern kingdom of Israel was undergoing tremendous economic prosperity and welfare because it was opening up its markets uh, to China, uh, no, not China, Assyria. Uh, the, that was a joke. 
uh, the the neo Assyrians were just starting to step onto the world stage as a as an economic and military force. And at first, of course, they had positive economic and political relations with the Northern Kingdom. But as a result of that, the Northern Kingdom became more and more under the sway of the moral uh, authority, uh, such as it was, of the Assyrian Empire and their religious ideas and their uh, ideas about how the world should be run and so on. And that caused the society to go into a kind of a capitalistic spiral that ended up oppressing uh, a lot of the population and justice was going out the window and rulers were becoming more exploitative and so on. And the whole story that eventually led to the destruction of the Northern Kingdom. And yet, while that was going on, one prophet is sent not to call for Israel to do Teshuvah, but to call for another nation to do Teshuvah. This is a huge story in Tanakh that is often overlooked, even though the story of Jonah, the story of Yonah, is kind of highlighted by the fact that it is read in the synagogue on the afternoon of Yom Kippur, no less. Literally, in metaphoric terms, the equivalent of the AFL Grand Final. In some, in some cases, sometimes uh, the Book of Yonah is even being read as the AFL Grand Final is being played. It's a highly, highly staged event. You don't get more focus than Mincha and Yom Kippur if you want to talk about the concept of Teshuvah and the rabbis determined that the text that we read on Yom Kippur in the afternoon is the book of Yonah, the book of Jonah. So there is something deep inside the book of Jonah that we need to come to terms with. And I'm also aware that a lot of people think, oh, the book of Jonah. So they think, oh, well, that's kind of like, you know, some sort of, uh, it, it reads like a kid's story. And uh, I, I, I don't know if, uh, how many of you are familiar with the book of Yonah. I'm going to assume that most of you are. To those of you who are not, uh, I'll summarize it. It's uh, four chapters. And uh, the first chapter takes place on a ship. The second chapter inside the body of some kind of aquatic animal. The third chapter is in the city of Nineveh. And the fourth chapter is outside uh, the city of Nineveh, an vantage point. And the story is, is that Jonah is a prophet who has been told by God to prophesy to another nation, to prophesy to the Assyrians in the great city of Nineveh. This is kind of remarkable. Sometimes we just look at this and we go, oh, yes. It's remarkable because it's the only case where a prophet of Israel is actually told to go and call upon another nation to do teshuva. The power and the theme of teshuva is such that it is universal. It doesn't just apply to the collective or individuals of the Jewish people. It applies to humanity right across the board. And Jonah, at first, as you know, doesn't want to go. And the reason he doesn't want to go, the rabbis tell us later in Midrash, is naturally because Jonah knows that if the Assyrians are given the opportunity to do Teshuvah, to improve their ways morally and ethically, 
then they will be given the opportunity to be the instrumentality for the punishment of Israel. So Jonah doesn't want to do it, but he runs away. But eventually, you know, as you famously know, he's swallowed by a big fish and that spews him out. And then he comes back. A lot of people think that the story of Jonah is the story of the Teshuvah and why it's written in Yom Kippur of Jonah himself. But of course, that's not really the highlight here. The highlight is that Teshuvah is the repentance of the city of Nineveh. Jonah is, Jonah's episode with the city of Nineveh is not the only time we encounter Jonah. And what we know about Jonah's career, basically, is that wherever he went, people listened to him. And so he turns up in Nineveh on his second attempt, uh, having been swallowed by the fish. And I'm imagining that this story became quite famous, uh, even at the time. Oh, and, and on that subject, um, we, we, don't, we don't know to what extent Jonah was swallowed by an aquatic animal in historical terms. What, what is amazing is what we do know is that during the 8th century, round about this time when the book of Jonah is set, uh, under uh, rulers like Tiglath-Pileser and so on, the, the neo-Assyrian rulers that are going to really, really churn the wheels of Assyrian expansion, uh, around about that time, we know that Assyrian society and Ninveh underwent a series of reforms. That's historically documented. So it's quite amazing that the Talakh is able to pinpoint that particular precise moment in history to set the book of Yonah. And Yonah turns up in Ninveh and he walks into the city and, 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 and check the, this contrast is incredible. This contrast is incredible because the prophets of Israel scream at the Jewish people for centuries to do Teshuvah. And Jonah just simply turns up in Nineveh, walks into the center of the city, and simply utters the words, in 40 days, God's going to destroy this place. And immediately, the king gets off his throne, takes off his royal robes, puts on sackcloth, sits down on the floor, and decrees a fast of three days for the entire nation. Immediately. And they realize that their behavior towards each other and their behavior towards the outside has been appalling, that the whole society has been based on uh, exploitative and immoral gain, and they do a very profound teshuva. In fact, the Midrash tells us that their teshuva was so profound that if someone had a palace that they had built with a beam in it that they had stolen from someone else, they would erase the entire palace just to be able to return that beam to its original owner. So the Teshuvah of Ninveh was extremely profound and they didn't even know it would work. In fact, Jonah doesn't actually tell them to do Teshuvah. He just tells them the city will be destroyed. And they go, well, we believe that. So maybe if we do Teshuvah, uh, it, that decree will be averted. And in fact, that's what's happening. Uh, Jonah subsequently doesn't like that. He's sitting outside the city waiting for its destruction. It doesn't happen. 
and Yona is uh, pretty upset about that. It's like it's a little bit like a Larry David or a kind of a Seinfeld episode type thing where he's complaining to God, you slapped me this whole way and you're not going to destroy this city. Like, what are you, you know, what's going on here? Uh, and then God makes a beanstalk for him and, he, and, and, and the beanstalk dies and there's a whole metaphor there for Yona, which we're not going into right now. What I want to go into is this idea of restoration as a facet of teshuva, as a facet of correcting uh, and transforming your world and uh, your identity in the world and the way you behave it, it's not always enough to say, oh, I'm now changed, I'm different. Uh, you need to go and restore to some extent, to the extent that you can, uh, the effects of your previous behavior. And this idea that the... Um, <laughs> that the Ninevans are returning uh, and restoring even stolen beams from their house is fascinating. It works on a principle that we find in the prophet uh, Habakkuk when he says, uh, you know, Ki even that the very beams of a person's house that were taken through immoral gain will call out. In other words, your entire lifestyle is the consequence of your ill-gotten gain and your corrupt way of behavior. So you need to deconstruct, literally, it uses the concept of construction and deconstruction, they're metaphoric as well as literal. You need to deconstruct your life and you need to restore uh, that which, it's not enough to say sorry. It's not enough to say, oh, I'm changed. You have to relinquish that behavior but as well as relinking that behavior, you have to make amends for the past. And we see this in the great symbolic movements of Teshuvah. Uh, that's why even today, nations that realize that their past behavior has been immoral make official apologies. They, they say sorry, and we might, we might laugh at that and say, ah, oh, that's a bunch of, uh, you know, leftists running around wanting to apologize to everybody, but it's extremely important on a symbolic level to acknowledge the past. And not just to acknowledge it in words, but to acknowledge it as well in deeds. That's kind of interesting because it's a little bit at variance with how the Talmud sees things. If you go into uh, the tractate of uh, Baba Kama, um, Actually, actually, but before I do that, before I, before I look at this contrast in, in, in how you go about restoring things, I just want to say that in another part of the Talmud, actually, in the Yerushalmi, uh, the rabbis are questioning the teshuva of the Ninevites because they're saying that it wasn't as sincere as it first looks. Because after the 40 days and then the city wasn't destroyed, they went back to their original corrupt ways. And from here, we learn another aspect of teshuva, and that is uh, the concept of relinquishment of past behavior. So you, on the one hand, you're restoring, correcting and restoring what has happened before, but you're also relinquishing it. It's famous uh, Gomorrah about the idea that uh, a person can, uh, if a person's got some kind of unclean animal in their hand, like an animal, like a, a sheret, a, a creepy crawly thing that can make you impure on contact, leviticulously impure on contact, and you can go and you can immerse in every mikvah in the world and it won't help you if you're still holding on 
to that abominable thing in your hand. Every mikvah in the world won't help you. But the second that you let go of that abomination, then all it takes is 40 seah of water, one simple little mikvah that's about the size of a bath, and you're completely pure. So the power of relinquishing your former behavior is absolutely paramount. But then we've got to look at the concept of restoration. And the Talmud tells us that, uh, the Talmud has this very interesting passage in Baba Kama that I, I just want to talk about for a minute because it's kind of interesting that it, it's, a, it's at variance with what the Midrash wants us to understand from Ninveh. Whereas the Ninevans are running around, raising, deconstructing their houses and returning building materials that they stole, the Talmud tells us that uh, you shouldn't do that. The Talmud tells us that people that have uh, gotten a lot of ill-gotten gain, either through uh, you know, extortion and through stealing and even through charging interest and exploiting people in other ways, if they want to make restoration of the things that they have stolen, we don't accept it from them. Meaning, we don't accept the original articles that they stole. So if someone steals your car and they drive it for a few years and then they say, oh, I was a bad person, I stole your car, I want to, I want to give it back to you, we don't take it from them. We, can take, we take the, the value, the compensatory value, but the actual object, we don't. And the reason for this, the reason for this, and it's really, really interesting within Jewish thought, the reason why we don't take what the rabbis... Look, it's not like you're not allowed to take it back, but the rabbis don't want you to. And the reason they don't want you to take back the actual item that's been stolen is because they don't want to make it difficult for people to do teshuva. It's a story brought in the Talmud, uh, in the Gemara that I was talking about in Baba Kama, where there's a guy who's been just a horrible uh, person, some kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, underworld figure type extortionist who decides that he wants to do teshuva and he's going to return everything that he has stolen. And his wife said to him, if you do that, you won't even be able to keep your own underpants. Everything, everything you have is stolen and extorted and misappropriated. And he said, you're right. I won't have anything left. And he didn't do Teshuvah. He didn't do that restorative project because it was too difficult. And it was at that moment that the rabbis decreed in the time of Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, and they said, you know what, we're going to make it that people don't need to actually restore the original items that they stole because that's too difficult. Especially people like shepherds and so on, people who deal with all kinds of uh, things where uh, it's very uh, difficult to actually tread the correct moral line in every situation. We give them lots of time to do this. It doesn't have to be done all at once. There is a restorative project to do but it doesn't have to be done all at once. And uh, it's, it's interesting to contrast that with the way that the rabbis see the teshuva of Ninveh, because uh, in Ninveh, unfortunately, there was full restoration, 
but there wasn't relinquishment. And what the Talmud is trying to get you to understand is that restoration and relinquishment are two sides of the same coin. You've got to let go of the previous behavior and you've got to restore. But if you don't do both of them hand in hand, uh, your teshuva is not effective. There is one more episode of teshuva uh, that I just want to speak about for the next five, uh, in the next five, remaining five minutes. Uh, because I'm go probably going to be leaving the Tanakh uh, next week and looking at other aspects of teshuva in Jewish history. But there is one more extremely interesting case of teshuva, and uh, I'm bringing it up as an ex in the Bible, and I'm bringing it up as an example of a kind of teshuva that is brought about through uh, extenuating difficult circumstances. Uh, this is the classic case, for example, that is applicable to the prophet Jonah, because when the prophet Jonah finds himself inside this big fish is when he suddenly realizes that maybe he hasn't quite done the right thing in terms of fulfilling God's uh, plan for him and he goes into this prayer and the whale uh, spews him out and so on uh, people sometimes do teshuva when they find themselves in tremendous difficult circumstances and they ask God to help them out of those circumstances and undertake to restore and to relinquish and to transform and to change their behavior as a result of it and the classic example of that that I want to talk about is the famous case of King Menashe. Those of you who've looked at me, with me at the uh, First Temple period and the kings of Israel and so on will know that uh, Hezekiah, the great righteous king at the time of Isaiah, at the end of the 8th century BCE, um, had uh, children that were not following in his footsteps, and he, uh, he was succeeded by King Menashe, who ruled for something like well over 50 years in the kingdom of Judah. And he was absolutely horrible. Uh, he filled Jerusalem with blood. He extorted people. He continued on the same oppressive, uh, despotic rule, but far worse than anybody that had gone on before him. He took awful, idolatrous abominations and placed them in the temple uh, go, and have, go and have a read of the description of him in the book of Divrei Ayamim, in the book of Chronicles, in great detail about all the horrible things that Menashe did. And as one of the things that Menashe was, of course, he was a vassal, not a vassal king so much, but he was definitely under the authoritarian influence of the superpower of the day, by which time was the Assyrians, because we're, we're about half a century on from where Yonah was. So now the Neo-Assyrians are really in control. And the Neo-Assyrians had no problem summoning these lesser kings uh, to sit in front of them and uh, account for their behavior, and they would treat them appallingly. So a king like us, uh, an Assyrian ruler like Ashurbanipal, no problem to take another king visiting him and stick him in a dog kennel for a week. And we know that uh, uh, some kings, and this happened to Menashe, potentially. They even had a hook put through their, their jaw and were dragged along in front of the Assyrian rulers like, like animals uh, in order to uh, give an indication to them about 
who's really, really in charge. And it's as a result of that experience in around the 22nd, 23rd year of his reign that Menasheh, in the depths of the Assyrian capital and subject to all of this humiliation, uh, suddenly turned to the God of his fathers and uh, realized that his role as a king in Judah uh, needs to change and that he affects a very profound teshuvah that uh, God allows him to come back to Jerusalem and try and fix that up. Didn't really do a brilliant job of fixing it up, but what we understand is that things were a little improved after that uh, as far as the population, as far as you know, the true values of the Torah were concerned. Uh, but we need to mention that because uh, Teshuvah needs to be more than simply a superficial exercise. As we've said, and we're going to look at in the success, there's two weeks left in the series, and I'm going to look at other aspects of Teshuvah through historical time, but they all point to this idea that on the one hand, uh, there is these two external aspects of restoration and relinquishment, but that the real engine of Teshuvah, the real engine of transformation happens within the person that they become, in a sense, a, a person uh, uh, that, that, the, that the slate is wiped clean, not only from heaven's perspective, but from within the person's heart themselves, that they are no longer going to be the person that committed uh, all of those immoral acts or bad behaviours. I don't want to accuse anybody in this room of acting immorally. That sounds a bit strong. But we all have ways in which our behaviour can be fixed and we need to look deep inside ourselves, deconstruct, return the beams, let go of that behavior, however difficult or however wrapped up it might be in our other concerns, and to look at ourselves perhaps as others might see us and to ask about our position in the world and how we're behaving, and that always involves an inner movement. I wish they had more time. I would definitely go on about some of the themes I've raised today, but uh, we will continue next week. And I hope that everybody stays uh, safe and sound and continues uh, with our great project collectively and individually of, uh, of being the best human beings that we can. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.